Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast with uh, me, Jason Carapesi, and Paul Gilieri. Paul, here we are. It's it's uh, about six days after we had a very interesting episode and pod and not well episode and and Tuesday, just a regular Tuesday in America. Not, nothing significant, notable, nothing of consequence at all. Well, uh, when you're listening to this now, we have uh, a new uh, a new president coming up in uh, a few months. So, if we sound a little bit more at ease and less stressed, it's because of that. Yeah, man. I mean, look, regardless of where you know your political leanings happen to sway, I think that we can all agree that we're long past due. For some, uh, some decency. decency. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. So let's just, uh, let's just, let's just end it with that. Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm down with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on. Uh, obviously we want you to rate, review and subscribe the show on, on uh, Apple podcasts and Spotify. Big on Spotify. We've got a lot of questions actually about Spotify lately. So Mm. we are on Spotify. Check us out there. Uh, Google podcasts, Stitcher, the whole nine. And uh, this week, before we kind of steer back into our usual flow of kind of highlighting certain, uh, I, I would say maybe it's like a, it's like a BuzzFeed-esque um, thing that we usually do. Um, we're going to kind of keep this thing kind of, uh, you know, laissez-faire, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of things we want to touch on before we kind of get to the big section uh, later on. And that will uh, be all about Ed's appearance on the Howard Stern Show for the very first time. That was a over yep. three-hour interview with Howard. Nuts. But Love. it was great. Uh, but first, a couple things of note we want to talk about, one of which is one of our favorite uh, tribute bands did a stream a week ago on the 30th of October, live from Lima, Peru. Do you have any uh, any, any interesting thoughts on their uh, about a 90-minute show, two, maybe two hours almost? So I would say this. What I appreciated about the set was the fact that it was a really eclectic set. And I went in pretty excited about it, mostly because I had a feeling that these guys were going to bring it. And they definitely brought it, man. Um, It was interesting seeing these different tracks, like, you know, Tremor Christ, Black, Quick Escape. Well, let's go through Amongst the waves. I mean, I got the whole thing right here. Let's go through real quick. Interstellar Overdrive into Corduroy, a common Pearl Gem thing to do. Uh Sad. I Am Mine, Do the Evolution, The Fixer, Hard to Imagine, Tremor Christ, Black, Quick Escape, Amongst the Waves, Future Days, I Got Id, Come Back, Even Flow, Better Man, Alive, Baba, Yellow Better. I mean, that would rival just a standard Pearl Jam show set list. Like if you went to a Pearl Jam show and you said, hey, this is, this is the set list Ed's got written down, 
I mean, how, who's not stoked about that list, right? I mean, it's it's all over the place, and it's fantastic. So, and and they nailed it, man. I mean, they 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 brought it, especially it for tense. a band that hasn't played together in a while. I mean, they're one of these bands. That I, I don't think they've done a stream. I couldn't tell you last time I did a stream, and they did those at home, you know, Zoom type covers. But that was back in the beginning of of the of the lockdown in the spring, much like other bands were doing. And so you have to think, you know, uh, but by the way, on top of this, Lufo, the bass player had his, his, uh, original band, um, emergency blanket just had a record come out. They've been doing stuff for that, pushing that. So he's kind of been yeah. in a completely different headspace. For sure. He's jumping back into rehearsals with Red Mosquito and they nail it. Yeah, they do. And, and I mean, think about that solo in quick escape. Oh my God. I mean, like, let's just, how many times do you think these guys have actually had a chance to rehearse? First of all, the album was released basically in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know what I mean? So for, for them to be just sit there and, and put together, and that's what I was curious about. Like, what, what, what is it going to sound like when they, they try to cover something like Gigaton and there's only so much rehearsal time that could have been dedicated towards a track like that versus, say, a song like Corduroy where maybe they've played it God knows how many times, you yeah. know, live and just in, in rehearsal. So I was incredibly impressed. Hats off to those gents keep bringing it and uh you know i don't want to tease anything but uh you and i we we've got some ideas percolating when it comes to these trips. oh we do have some ideas percolating. there's some logistical hurdles to uh go over but if we can get our ducks in a row we've got something up our sleeves that i think everybody will really enjoy yes And, Um, and because i hate being a tease if we cannot get those ducks in a row then we will just come out and say to folks eventually look we had some thoughts. We don't have we, those thoughts are now unthoughts. Here's known. The, ah, damn it! You got beat me to it, <laughs> son of a bitch. Uh, a little coda on the on the shrimp mosquito thing. So not only was it a regular, um, it wasn't a regular live stream. It was they had a, a setup at this studio uh, where they had a 3D camera, and by, well, I'm sorry, 360 degree camera. So what that means is they basically had like four cameras on a tripod, and if you're on your phone or on your computer, you can take your mouse, or your finger, and you can kind of scrub the video and move right. inside the room while they're playing. So you could just be on Luis and Lufo the entire time. You yeah. Could be on the entire time. You could be on anybody the entire time. I was kind of bouncing around. You know, uh, Hyro would be singing something, and I'd, I'd see him and Gucci, and then I'd swing over to, you know, Luis busting out a solo or something like that. It was a really cool way to do it. I think they had some sponsors, and they actually had some, like, live um, – uh, what was it like? If you want us to play black, or you want us to play porch, uh, donate. And then whatever song got the most donations is the song they played. Like yeah. set. that was super cool. Uh, and one final thing is, so when they were done, I was sending them some messages and they, they invited me to this post show interview hangout on zoom and Facebook live. So I got to talk to these guys. I kind of had like a second little, uh, rap session with them and people were, were commenting in and asking Jose, the band, ma- band manager, um, questions to me. And then I'd ask the guys, it was just really cool back and forth. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully we can do something like that again. Cause that was great. Very yeah. fun. And um, not to put a, a, a period on the sentence of, of these guys, but uh, like I mentioned, emergency blanket, they've got a new record coming out or I'm sorry, it's been out for a couple of months now. And uh, we're going to actually going to interview that band 
much in the same way that we interviewed Black Circle about their original album a couple months back. So look for that coming up very soon. Yeah, very excited about that. And uh, let's move on to our next uh, segment here. And it's on another piece of news that we have. Uh, it's been out for a few weeks now, and it's the re-release of MTV Unplugged. It's on CD for the first time. It's re-released on vinyl. Yeah. Uh, it's on iTunes for the first time and all its beautiful soundboard quality uh, glory. What do, what do you think? You know, they had one single from 10 out at the time, right? But Alive was just blowing up the airwaves mm-hmm. at the time, back in 91. So MTV decides, let's, let's give this a whirl, right? I think they had the guys go on like after midnight because- It was they, the third they, of the day. It yeah. was. They, they booked Mariah Carey and Boys to Men because they didn't want to have to double or triple up on production costs, mm-hmm. right? So here they are, you know, young, young band, up and coming, comes on, and uh, obviously immediate just smash hit, right? It's, it's an iconic show. But if you recall what that experience was like watching that, and I do because I, I taped it with a cassette tape, when it was because it was subsequently re-released, right? You, you'd, mm. you'd see, oh, MTV Unplugged series, and then you, right. you'd see it. So I, I remember having it on a, a VHS tape. Remember VHS kids? Yeah, right. And what was crazy was I remember watching it, and because it didn't actually air until like May of '92, yeah. so it was weeks or months later, right? So it starts off in the broadcast with Evenflow, then moves into Jeremy, and then Alive. And then black. And so, and I think they finished with, with porch in the, the actual broadcast. Mm-hmm. And what's wild about it though, is that it, it pretty much kind of followed a pattern of like, Oh, let's just play our hits. Right. And then, then, then we'll, we'll move into something nice and quiet at the end with black. And then boom, we'll just hit you in the mouth with, with porch. However, that's not the way the set list actually unfolded Correct. for those who were in attendance that night because they actually opened with Oceans. Which would make a lot more sense for what, what their live shows like. Exactly, right? It was more of a reflection of, mm-hmm. of what the shows at the time were like. That got edited out of the original broadcast, okay? And they closed with a cover of Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World, also Cut. not part of the original broadcast, right? So you had these six songs, and uh, it just feels it felt like a very bizarre set list in the sense that the, the way it was arranged and the way it was was organized so to kind of see it represented the way that it is now and to have an opportunity to get this limited edition release um with the beautiful i, I want to i forget who remastered it it was remastered right i'm pretty sure it was I oh man and, i don't know the specs i'll top it, my head i don't remember yeah in any case, you get a chance to get it on vinyl, right? It's uh, like you mentioned, you can get it on iTunes. It's, it's available wherever you want to find it. But it feels like the release that it should have been, no pun intended, with the mm. ending track there to, um, to 10. So I thought it was a really, really interesting way to kind of come back at this and say, you know what, let, let, let's give this the treatment that it deserves. Let's push this back out there and... Uh, and commemorate this in a way that that honors what that show really meant, not only to Pearl Jam fans, but for that series, MTV Unplugged as well, because I think most folks who remember that era would agree that Pearl Jam set was actually one of the most iconic of, 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 of the whole series. In and it wasn't on, that they intentionally did not um, put it out there for consumption as a CD when, you know, think about it, 
I think Nirvana's was about 16 months, 18 months later that they did theirs. Yeah. And that blew up with like, I don't know how many millions of copies were sold. And uh, Allison Chains did a similar thing a couple of years uh-huh. after that. They also they, had a, that was really yeah. um, uh, well purchased. Uh, yeah, but you had to get like a bootleg if you yeah, want a pro. They did, not, you know? they did not put it out on, on as a record that you could get. Uh, and it was funny, even still, right now, the one that's released out there isn't totally the right set list. They still reverse even flow and porch. Porch was played before even flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because porch is the way that the song ends, especially it's a better closer. They still keep it flipped, even though they keep the rest of the set list as it really, really was not what it was put out, you know, back in 92 oceans leading off. And so, and then state of love and trust and alive. And uh, because if you go back and watch the video, you see that the producers tell uh, Eddie to put his corduroy jacket back on to cover up his pro-choice on his exactly. left arm. Exactly, yeah. You can still see it on his, on his hand, uh, the exclamation points, but that that was a little bit of uh, uh, producing uh, magic, if you will. But nevertheless, I'm glad to see that it's basically the original uh, concept and it's still so, 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 so good. And I've been reading the, the Not For You book by Ronan uh, Givney. Uh-huh. I'm probably mispronouncing that name. Um, I'm, I'm like this close to being finished with it and I'm going to hand this off to you because it's such a good read. And one thing that was really interesting about, uh, his discussion of that point in time is you really noticed how good Dave is and the mm-hmm. way that they've positioned everybody in this like half circle, this, this moon figure, it, you see him in almost every shot. And so you really notice what he adds to everything and they're playing on rented guitars and, and rented basses. And so, you know, it's not, they're not used to that, but Dave is just like, Hey, I'm just happy to be here. I'm rocking out. And he's, he just comes out very strongly. I remember noticing that when I rewatched after reading the book. For, for so. sure, man. And, and just to close, I will remember thinking how excited I was about that set because I must've worn that CD out, you know, or, or those of you who had the cassette tape, I'm sure you did the same thing with 10 and you just tried to imagine what would this sound like? What are these guys going to sound like unplugged, you know, and just given any in this book, and I'm, I'm reading this quote here that I, I'm catching in this loudersound.com article where he was uh, referenced. He says, stripped of amplification, the songs have shed gravity, aggression, bombast, stripped of effects. What emerges is the lyricism, the architecture and the melodic sense, the harmonies and counter rhythms accents, textures, and group interplay. And I think that sums up beautifully what was so poignant and um, memorable about this show. And I think why the anticipation for it and why its longevity in terms of how beloved it is amongst Pearl Jam fans continues to sustain itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, speaking, uh, we mentioned uh, Nirvana having their own unplugged thing. um, And there was obviously a... I don't want to call it a rivalry, but you know, the, between Nirvana and Pearl Jam, there was uh, a clash of heads. Were they friends? But they kind mm-hmm. of propelled Seattle um, to be this big scene, and it was one of the things that Howard Stern wanted to ask uh, Eddie about in his three-hour-long interview. And it was about a little over a week ago um, that that happened on the second day before the election last week, and it was the first time that Ed was on on the show he had never he still hasn't 
actually met Howard, but he he met Howard through through Skype or Zoom, whatever that whatever they use. And that was one of the topics was like, hey, listen, you know, you guys were kind of dueling and, and had a rivalry, and, and you know, what was your take on on Ed's, Ed's response there? Well, you know, just his point that some people liked you, some resented you, or even hated your music. And, and he says, and I agreed with them at all points. He says that with a laugh. And so I think that there's a self-deprecation to the way Eddie approaches the early uh, era of Pearl Jam's music. And um, I don't know, man. I mean, th- there seems to be a sense for Eddie where he could care less whether or not labels, uh, anyone in the industry, uh, you know, cared or even liked the band. But fellow musicians, there's something about wanting to be accepted, wanting to be uh, embraced, liked, appreciated, uh, maybe admired is the wrong word, but you look at his relationship to Johnny Ramone, to Neil Young, to um, Townsend, to P. Townsend, right? Uh, you just look at these connections and how much it meant to him and how he wanted to surround himself with the, these idols of his, with, with these musicians that he was, that he appreciated and admired and respected. And I think that he saw that as kind of like a call to legacy where he, he thought to himself, you know, I'm in a band, but there's a responsibility here. And, and I, you know, I want to, I want to find myself the way Neil finds himself, you know what I mean? Uh, doing a benefit and, and making um, lasting music that speaks and, I don't want to just be this, this supernova band that flames out after two or three albums. And, um, and I think that's why he really eschewed the whole rock star image and, and the, uh, the vibe that I think Dave really loved about being in the band. And you look at a band like Nirvana, who really kind of, I mean, would publicly just say, you know, we just think their music sucks. You know, we, we, we're just, don't like their music. Posers, I think you said. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I kind of felt like it was unfortunate because, you know, the band didn't go in this full counterculture um, trip the way that Nirvana did, you know? I, I feel like they their music did talk about issues like homelessness and mental health. I mean, you just look at some of the themes that are raised in 10 and, and verses and even Vitology. And I mean, obviously, Kurt was, was gone by the time Vitology came out, but... It's just unfortunate, I feel, that, you know, I, it's really hard to think that Eddie specifically went out of his way to rub Kurt the wrong way. And I can't help but think that there was just something about, like, I mean, look, this guy put a shotgun in his mouth, you know what I mean? He was troubled, to say the least. And so mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where I, I look at it and I think to myself, it's hard not to feel like Kurt just had, he was hung up on something that had nothing to do with any member of Pearl Jam at all. And it was just being misplaced in that direction. It, it you know? may have been. I mean, one of the things that stuck out to me in the interview was Eddie saying that he didn't feel it was a rivalry between those two bands. He felt that it was Seattle versus the world and that the media would take quotes from like Jeff out of one magazine and, and Kurt from a radio interview and then put them together in a new, in a new article. And then it would basically pit them against each other and create this tension. They, he, 
it sounded like he said that he sounded like he meant that there really wasn't a true rivalry. I mean, you see them in the in the later years of Kurt's life, and they're like hugging backstage, and like they're all yeah. buddy buddy. It's interesting though, and you go back to like '91, for example, and they played uh, your hometown, San Francisco, on New Year's Eve mm-hmm. with the Chili Peppers, and it was I think the only time they've ever played on the same bill, and they on that tour in the '91 tour. Like a dozen times, they would uh, tease "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Like, right? Mike would start playing it, and then they they would like make some like maybe a snarky comment or like sing it for like yeah. a second or something like that, or change the lyrics to like "I'm dumb, I'm dumb," I'm, whatever, it, whatever it is. And so I find that kind of odd too, though, because they did it on the same night before Nirvana on the same bill when Nirvana would have played the song an hour and a half later like why would you antagonize like that or did you mean it more of a maybe it wasn't antagonistic maybe it was more of just a hey this is a good song you're going to hear it later but like it just depends on what the tone is and what and what kind of mood eddie is because eddie was well, so fucking moody with those first look man years. i mean you know you, you look at the, the the seeds of discord and how they can become sown and how that ultimately impacts and affects the way that people respond and react to each other i mean we saw this stuff playing out in our own country in the last four years. So mm. it's not, I mean, it, it, there's so many elements that I think contributed to this. And at the end of the day, like if I really had to sum this all up, it's really much to do about nothing. Yeah. And I, I will say um, something else that I, that I picked up from the uh, not for you uh, book is it. Um, the more I look at it after having read the book, the more I realize how much Kurt affected Ed's sensibilities toward um, kind of humanity and, and treating, you know, women's rights and, and pro-choice and kind of um, being more open-minded in that sense and fighting for other people because, you know, that was, that was Kurt's thing. Kurt was all about that kind of thing and almost to a point where it just, it wore, well, obviously it did wear on him so much that he, he kind of looked at other people in such a negative way and that he was he could always disappoint everybody and all this. And it actually made, it seemed to make Eddie, a better person, I think, in a way. It may have. I mean, you know, it's... He wasn't really speaking out for things. He was just angry up there at the beginning right. of the first year or so. But then he realizes that people are identifying and he learns something from what Kurt's passions are. I mean, the song like Polly, anti-rape, you know, from the... Yeah. So, like, that kind of comes into his consciousness a little bit more when, if you look up videos of him with bad radio... You know, back in the back before you know Mookie Blaylock, he's trying to be something that he's not, and he's not even close to the kind of person that he is later. Obviously, you grow up and you mature, but sure, I think there was definitely a positive influence there from Kurt. Yeah, I agree. Um, Howard obviously mentioned Chris Cornell. Yeah. Um, something about the questioning there struck me because I didn't know that Ed's youngest. Uh, half-brother had died just a year before Chris Cornell did. Yeah, I think I remember catching that somewhere when um, I was like mining the internet trying to find uh, just a response from the band. And, um, you know, they really did not want to talk about this publicly for a while. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's not something that you want aired out there. I mean, they were grieving, you know. I mean, these guys were really shared some indelible moments 
during their lives in their youth and, and continue to, to stay friends. I mean, Eddie did say, you know, recently he'd only see Chris like, you know, every so often at a gig or something. It's not like mm. they were hanging out all the time, but, you know, referencing watching Chris like play with his dog in the rain and thinking to himself, this guy's a rock star and like he, he I'm hanging out with him and he, he's, you know what I mean? I mean they were he's, buddies. They were roommates for a time. You know, that's he, what I mean, you know? And so you, you really kind of, um, you have a, a I, I, the fact that he referenced that memory, I can't help but think that every time you saw Chris play or on television or in a video or on the radio, like that memory seemed to come back to him. And it was almost like, well, that's the Chris everybody else knows or sees, but this is the Chris that I knew. And he, he just kind of, it's like a moment frozen in time, you know? And I think that that's where part of the pain comes from because he tells Howard how he loved Chris, you know, and he would allow Chris to make whatever choices Chris wanted to make. But as a father, he kind of looks at suicide and he thinks to himself, there's a certain selfishness to that act. Yeah. And when you have children, that's, and he says this, it's not an option anymore. It just isn't because, you know, your children are going to have to live with that. They're going to have to live not ever truly understanding and, and, it doesn't, even if they do eventually understand, it's not going to make it better. You know, they're always going to have to live with the fact that you didn't just do this to you, you did it to us. And, and I think that that is what really makes this even more difficult for Eddie is that he, he can't just grieve and be sad. There's a part of him that finds it unacceptable and he's angry about it. You know what I mean? When point and, blank, uh, Howard said, you know, did, did you, because at the point he was answering the question, he was really like serious and sullen and kind of the spaces between the words was longer. And yeah. Howard goes, well, did you think that you would maybe commit suicide? Were you feeling that depressed? And for a second, you think Ed's going to say, oh, maybe for a second, you know, I, uh, that was that. And he just, no, like it completely switches and he goes, absolutely not. You, you really, you put the context of, of your life, but everyone else's who relies on you uh, into into your consciousness, and you go uh, no. So, as sad as he is about about Chris, he's pissed. It's like, what, what the hell did you do that for, man? And, yeah, and, and, I know. And, and, and you know, he knew Chris's family well. I mean, he, he obviously still does. he still does. You know, uh, Chris's daughter. There there have been um, stuff online about the, those two connecting as well. And um, you know, he didn't know Scott Weiland. You know, I mean, he's referenced Lane, right? obviously in the past and, and, and just kind of lamenting the, the, the Andy Wood as well. And just this, this whole idea of like, look, if you have this affliction and you can't seem to cut it out, you know what I mean? Of your life. That's one thing because it, it you just become a victim to these demons, but really is, is suicide that much different than an overdose? Well, yes, because you know, I don't think Lane, maybe Lane did. I don't know, but I would imagine people like Andy Wood and Lane didn't consciously overdose on right. purpose to die. You know what I mean? And so I think that's where the, the it's easier to grieve and just grieve uh, w without necessarily the anger directed at the person. And, and I think that that's what makes this really, It really just goes to show that that depression is a fucking weird thing. And yeah, th th it's hard as much as someone wants to rationalize. I've heard people say before, um, that the idea of suicide, it's just super selfish and fuck those people and did it. And they get really mad about it. Like that person's a jerk. And I'm like, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, you've got to understand that the person who did the act 
is so the the chemicals are so out of whack. This is what I have to assume that that they don't look at it that way. They they feel like they're doing the people they love a service by leaving. Yeah. And it's that yeah. weird there's there's a there's a dissonance there between between the thought processes that people oftentimes can't find themselves coexisting in their brains. Yeah. I know, man. It's um the whole thing is just a mess and uh and it's I wish sad. you would have asked about um comes and goes, because you have to imagine it's it's about Chris in some way. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know how in tune with the new album or just in general a lot of the, the newer stuff howard is and so i, I don't think that that really kind of came across yeah. as something i, I to mean kind of explore that's but. what i figured i just kind of hoped that maybe his research staff would have it would have been nice yeah, yeah. That, you know, i mean how many you people got are four ask? hours basically of, of time with god how many folks are gonna have the option to really ask him that question oh god man you know can you imagine like if we had four hours of eddie vetter I, yes, I, I i'd need a I week just to, yeah i mean it'd be nuts anyway well depression and his friends dying around him are, isn't one of the only things that, that plagued Ed. Obviously we've talked about his, his battle with fame and reclusivity. Is that a word? Reclusivity? Reclusiveness? I believe so. Reclu- yeah. Reclusiveness, right? There you go. Um, so he talks about Neil and Neil Young and how he kind of came into the band's life right, just at the right time taught them how to deal with fame and help guide them kind of like a musical father figure. Uh-huh. Of course we got out of that. We got active love and then we got the mirror and Merkin ball records. Um, and I just find, I find their association, how they kind of got together and how Neil helped them. I mean, we talk about San Francisco in 95 when Ned got food poisoning. That's another thing. Hmm. Um, I find that very interesting. Neil's influence on the band, I think can't go understated. I mean, it's not just taking him under his wing. It, it was really kind of showing them a path that could be theirs if they wanted it to be. And you look at all the other bands of that era and how very few of them have come close to emulating what they could represent, not only to music, but to mm. society. And, and I feel like uh, Pearl Jam, under Eddie's stewardship, was able to kind of find their way through this. And we talked about this in a What If segment you know, a couple months ago where we said, what if Dave had never been fired? And we both came to the same conclusion. The band probably wouldn't be around. Um, so I, I think it's figures like Neil that really played an important role, especially when you compare and contrast Pearl Jam's early days in the interview. He tells Howard, you know, I just, I wanted to write. I wanted to put words to music, you know, he's jumping off the stage. He's the cr- crazy wild man. Right. And then <laughs> they're in their mid twenties. Everything's powerful and just, you know, in your face and, and just supernova every song, you know? And, um, now, you know, they're much older and their shows get longer, not just because of the catalog. Right. But it just becomes kind of like, um, a way of life for them mm. as opposed to, I think what it was before where it was just this constant organic creation. Um, and this kinetic energy and you still see that right i mean when we saw them here in la they had those orbs hanging from those cables and mm-hmm. he's jumping on them swinging out over the crowd right i mean it's you still see it obviously it's more responsible but <laughs> well at the beginning he was doing that shit because he was bored yeah he said he would he would be working at his is it is you know crap jobs and and then he'd go and work for free at, at the local you know theaters or whatever and he'd see these ornate you know old school um, balconies and, 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 you know, things that you could climb on. He think, man, that'd be, that'd be kind of cool to climb on that. And 
lo and behold, he gets into a band where he's at playing these kinds of venues and he, he just like, yeah, you know, middle, middle of porch. I'm just going to go up there and mess yeah. about. Yeah, but like, why not? But, well, when we're, when we're watching, we're thinking this guy's a psychopath. <laughs> like, what is he doing? Death wish. <laughs> you know, and, and Howard was like, you know, your bandmates must have been like, you could kill yourself. You could, you could, I mean, he was falling from crazy heights sometimes. You think about Pink Pop jumping off the camera. Oh, it's nuts. Um, yeah. Like geez, Pop ninety two, that was crazy, and 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 the band members could have, and the manager, the label, everybody yeah. could have said, dude, like this whole thing ends if you don't get up, you know. Um, so I, I I completely get that, and you know, just to segue that into just drug use, where mm. you know, I always wondered whether or not Eddie did drugs. You know, I mean, he seemed to be, I mean, obviously the smoking of the cigarettes and the wine all the time, I get that. But I always wonder just because so many of these other guys just really struggled with it from that scene. And he says, you know, in the interview that he had his time with that stuff. And uh, I wonder what, though, because I'm sure, I mean, I, I assumed he was smoking weed for years. Well, he mentioned psychedelics. What else? Yeah. Yeah. But I, so thank God, like, I mean, I, I mean, you didn't go down that dark rabbit hole of heroin you know what i mean mm. i don't even know if he ever even attempted that stuff i would imagine like to think not given was the that, genesis was that of the problem? band uh well mike had a drinking issue if i recall i don't know if he got into heroin he a but problem too um he may have I, that's an, something for us to look into again but you've got this the whole genesis of the band originates out of andy wood o- overdosing you know right. what i mean so you'd so think if, that they'd steer clear of you, you, <laughs> jesus yeah right so but uh just kind of looking at it and thinking, all right, well, you know, he's now a father. And I think, and he mentions the fact that now that he's had kids, you know, he hasn't done any of that kind of stuff since because you just never know. And, and God, I'm, I'm still getting called into a room at five 30 in the morning sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah, you so, gotta be on, on top of yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And so, but then he jokes, he's like, you know, as soon so, as the kids are out of the house, you know, all once they're 18. <laughs> <laughs> mom and dad will play. Yeah, we had to pop a little blue pill and do some kung fu. <laughs> Howard also mentioned um, how he could not understand how well Ed took, you know, learning about his real dad in his teens. Well, I mean, I think he he, he hated the stepdad, you know? Like his mom says, this is not your real father. He's like, oh, thank God, man. I mean, you know, but it's also hard because you actually met your father and I didn't tell you. That's the you know fucked I mean? up part, isn't it? That's isn't that the, that, I mean, the reasoning is that they had the three brothers and so they wanted to make it feel like a proper family, like they're his real brothers, not these half brothers. So I get the logic behind the lie, but then to have the dad come over as like the family friend and you in to know that you could have had a relationship this entire time, I mean, yeah, that, that, that part's tough. And, you know, it, it kind of raises a morality question where you have to ask yourself as a parent, you're trying to create a reality and a life for your children. That's going to shape who they become later. And, um, look for better or for worse, it's really hard to, to fault his mother for the choice that she made. Um, when you look at the man Eddie is, I'm sure that, you know, his wife, Jill, and, and their wonderful children love him dearly. And, you know, I mean, but at the same time, you know, it, 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 I don't know the realities, the innermost details of what his childhood was like and what's been suppressed, what hasn't been. I just know that I think, you know, you look at a, a song like Release and that really 
captures, I think, everything he felt as an adult when he reflects on that. Well, and he had Alive, which was like sort of based on, like half based on his experience. And then you have a song like Better Man, which was centered around for all that time. Yeah, right. And and that that's the whole thing of like, you know, thank God this guy's not my dad, you know? Yeah. So I don't know, man. I mean, it, it's a really fascinating kind of circle. Um, the thing that most roller coaster though with, with that. I mean, to oh, I can't even that, fathom that. Yeah. You've moved. You've moved from Chicago to to Encinitas, California. You're there, and then all of a sudden, your mom takes your your uh, half brother's back. I think to Chicago, and he's there by himself, living on his own. And you know, he's got the. He tells a story about how. <laughs> One of his teachers said, "You know, this is this is a uh, real life, man. This is not messing around." And he's like, he opens up his backpack and shows him like his water bill. He's like, "No, this is real life. I'm living on my own, and I have to pay my own bills. Yeah. Your homework isn't exactly the most important thing in my life right now." It's like he had so much shit going on that I didn't ever realize before. I knew I knew like you know the the skeleton of it, but the details, the flesh on the bones kind of thing. That's and, so and wild to me. That's why, you know, anyone listening to this, I mean, obviously saying, hey, go carve out four hours of time to listen to this Howard Stern interview. But I mean, if you could just go search some clips, it's it's definitely worth it because it, th- this might be the longest, most comprehensive interview with Eddie that we'll ever get. I mean, it's not like he's a spring chicken anymore. And, you know, uh, God willing, we'll get out of this pandemic eventually. And I, I don't know if he's ever going to have the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> to yeah. do something like this again. So, but fortunately, it was with a guy like like Howard, who's a tremendous interviewer, and he's able to yeah. feel and get those answers out that maybe he wouldn't have been, felt, felt comfortable with with Joe Schmo from Rolling Stone, kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Well, musically speaking, there's a couple of things that that we found very interesting. One of them was talking about the inception of Nothing Man, which of course is one of your favorite favorite songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you look at the creation of this song. And um, what I thought was really interesting about it was how you're just kind of like working on something on the side, right? And uh, a band member, in this case, it's Jeff, right? Kind of over overhears and, and just kind of watches and kind of looks. And, and this ability to just kind of slap something together really, really quickly. And it's a puzzle it, piece. Yeah, it was like a puzzle piece. And it called to mind for me the Versus Vitology um, deluxe set that we both mm. bought back in the day. And there's a demo of Nothing Man. And it's really interesting to go revisit that song and kind of hear like what that actually, what was the product of this story. So that I thought was a really interesting kind of um, payoff, I suppose, to, to hearing that. In the, to like hear, well, what I found interesting too was that Ed says that Jeff's got a quote day in the studio with a buddy of who of his who's a drummer. But like that's not Dave. Like who who's in they're in right. New Orleans for a show and they have some days off. So they go into, so Jeff's in the studio with a drummer friend of his who's not Dave. That's that's weird unto itself. But then he Ed hears this and is just flipping through his little his his legal pad of lyrics. That'll fit right there. And then like what a couple within a couple hours I got the song. Like that's incredible. Yeah, it was like well, it was nice. and Tremor Christ, right? We we're kind of the two that came out of that session. Mm-hmm. That's just so wild, you know. The whole idea of to have this song of unrequited love being the most powerful thing, because you'll always wonder what might have been. Like what? A, what a thought! I'd never think of that being the most powerful kind of love. But he's got that just on a pad, and he slaps on some music that Jeff's got. Boom! There you go, incredible song out of nowhere. 
Yeah. And it's, it's funny to, as a songwriter to think how Eddie, like what's, what's kind of running through his mind. Like he obviously had thoughts, you know what I mean? And so I've always wondered, is it one of those things for him where he hears music and it, it, it provokes, or is he just thinking and then he hears music and then he, he, I don't want to say shoehorns the lyrics in, but I mean, there's got to be some type of like synergy, right? Something serendipitous where the music and the feeling have to kind of find a marriage. And then that pieces together what becomes a great song as opposed to saying, well, this is what I'm thinking about. And this is what you guys are playing. I think this will work, you know? So that part, I was really, really fascinating. I've been in a couple of shitty bands in my, in my past. And the question always was what's more important, the music or the lyrics. And, and when you think of, Whatever way you want to answer it will determine which one you write first. I was kind of always more of a music person and I would write the music and I'd be like, okay, what lyrics can fit into these parts? Yeah. That's kind of how I came. But, but when you're a guy like Ed, who, who does things both ways, he's both a poet and a storyteller. And I feel like the poetry fits in better when you've got the lyrics already done and you can apply them to the song. Yeah. Whereas maybe a story needs to be done after the fact the fit, I, I don't know maybe i'm wrong but he said that he's always working on his storytelling and i'm I, i'm wondering i'm trying to think like what do you think are his better lyrics when he's more just being poetic or when he's actually telling a story well i mean you look at some of his performances on um backspacer with the end and uh just breathe and i remember stone in an interview saying how he thought that was some of the best stuff he, eddie had ever done um and when he when he heard those songs, it was it just blew his mind. Mm. So I feel that when Eddie wants to tell a story, like he does in "Off He Goes" or mm. um, you know "Just Breathe" or, or 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 the end, that that's when he really shines. Um, where the story comes from, I don't think is that relevant. But I, I find that to be a far more. Uh, that's where Eddie is at his best versus when he's he's just commenting on something socially. You know what I mean? Um, not that we don't enjoy those songs. I mean, think we, about WMA. That's not really a story. Per, it no. comes from a story, but it's more just a, of a poem about something. Yeah, exactly. But I, I've always felt though that, you know, like we were talking about what are, if we were going to replace Bush Leaguer with what would be the quintessential Pearl Jam protest song if, if, if as it were and I'm, i remember going through all these songs and thinking there are so many great ones but lyrically i don't think i would put any of them on the same plane or platform as as some of these stories that we get with you know what i mean songs yeah. like off he goes and, and and so on and so on so well speaking of stories we've got a song called elderly woman behind the counter there in a small go. town named named that way because they had been getting criticism that all their song titles were one or two words. Yeah. <laughs> which is true. I think every, pretty much every song on those first two records was one or two song, one or two words. So he explains to Howard, cause Howard's like, Oh, I love that. How did you come up with that? Like, how do you, how do you write a song like that? And he's like, well, you know, we were uh, recording verses at a place called the site in Marin County, um, just North of San Francisco. And, you know, it was too nice. It was too nice of a place. So there was like an outhouse or like a sauna in the backyard or something like that. And I would set up, he had like these, 
this uh, p- little PA system kind of set up in there. The speakers were kind of flanking him as he, as he slept kind of thing. And mm-hmm. one morning he was just kind of dicking around doing like an exercise on his guitar and, and stone happened to overhear it, you know, across the yard kind of thing. I was like, what, what are you playing there? And it just kind of happened. Now, Al Howard asks him, how do you d- decide to, or how do you come up with the idea of writing a song from a woman's perspective, missing someone like how, can you have you you're a writer how have you ever written something in that perspective that's not like your own oh for sure um how hard is it it's really challenging actually um i teach the book the outsiders which was written by essie hinton right and so she's she i think started writing this book when she was 15 and she writes the book almost entirely from the point of view of a 14 year old boy Hmm. And, and and she also incorporates, I mean, the whole story basically covers this group of boys in, uh, in Oklahoma at the time. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's one of the most, I think, uh, admirable accomplishments of the book is, is the way that she was able to craft point of view. And what's liberating about point of view, but also challenging at the same time, is trying to find like that kernel that makes that defines your identity, right? And and it's really hard to find that within yourself. But sometimes it can be easier to kind of find that in someone else. You can you can mm. basically you know grab a moment in someone's life and say this moment here is the wellspring from which all of this person's identity will come from, and then you basically create a persona from that. And you look at a song like Elderly Woman. And it's not, I mean, I listen to that song and it, it, it feels like there's, there's a, a two prong approach here where it's almost a, it's a meeting. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's also kind of two perspectives happening. It feels like when, when you look at these, these lyrics, I mean, well, if you want to do that, we should probably just go to our lyric of the week, Paul, but we should. Okay. Well, let's just do that. <laughs> Okay, Paul, here's the lyric of the week. We mentioned it a second ago. It's elderly woman behind the counter in a small town. You wouldn't recall, I'm not my it's hard when you're stuck up on the shelf. I change by not changing at all. Small town predicts. Perhaps that's what no one wants to see. Okay, Paul, we, we kind of just started talking about it uh, even before the lovely little drop in music happened, but we have to like section these things off. So let's just talk about the lyrics now. And you know, the, the writing process from Ed's point of view was kind of very like just doing an exercise kind of out of nowhere, didn't mean to. And then there's just, he said the song just sort of sort of sat on his shoulder. Um, so where do you think, you know, the song in general, but obviously more specifically, these lyrics kind of, kind of come from and what do they mean? You know, me, you wouldn't recall for, I'm not my former, right? Where it's hard when you're, you're stuck on a shelf, but it's this idea that, and this, this line, I think sums it all up. I changed by not changing, right? That, that this town basically writes my story for me and that's what nobody wants to see 
And so I, I just want to scream hello, right? Because it, nobody sees me, nobody notices me because I'm a, I'm, I'm an archetype basically, mm. you know? And so suddenly this person comes back, right? You look at the, the last lines here or not the last lines, but close to the last lines. It's been so long, never dreamed you'd return. And it's this idea here where no matter how hard we resist change and people hate change, people fear change. Absolutely. And, and I think especially in certain areas where you grow up in a culture or in an environment where leaving is not, it's either not, not much of an option for socioeconomic reasons, or it's just not taught as something you should even consider doing. Frowned upon. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and how that becomes a perpetual cycle that basically handcuffs each generation into really opening up their minds and expanding their horizons beyond what has been known to them and what has been essentially instilled and taught to them. And there's something like kind of haunting about that, just to reference an actual line from the song, obviously the context and the song is different, but you know, these memories like fingerprints are slowly raising, you know, and, and this idea that we become essentially resigned to a fate that, that we, we actually have the power to break that cycle. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's a lot of what this past election was about was, you know, we saw cycles being broken and we needed to wake up and recognize before other cycles became so established that we, we, we allowed that to become established norms because there was a normalcy of things that was really haunting to think about. And so I kind of feel like with this track here, with these lyrics, this ability to kind of say, okay, you know what? Um, it's time to get off the shelf um, because it, it, it's not the most flattering picture, to be honest with you, that gets painted for mm. this persona. To me, anyway, I, I, there's a certain sadness to me when I when I listen to the lyrics and, and I hear the song. It, it's not like, uh, I mean, it's not shit town by live off throwing copper, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, at the same time, I mean, there's certain shades of that, you know, it's just obviously far more poetic and uh, and, and more personal and, and uh, introspective, as it were. I, I see kind of two sides to this. I see it from perspective of of me. And I see it from the perspective of the people that I grew up with. So, you know, I left my hometown and I got out and I, and I changed as a person. The people back home would not recognize me as I am today. Completely different kind of person. Now, perhaps I'm the man the subject is speaking about in this song, you know, versus then you have the people that I grew up with. And, and we have social media now and every so now, every so often I will go on Instagram or Facebook and I'll look up some folks that still live in that town all these years since I left, which is like 25 years ago. These people have changed by not changing at all. Many of them simply just look older, but their interests and their personalities are exactly the same. And it's just a small town thing. It's, it's the thing that I feared, retrospectively speaking, because at the time I didn't want to leave what was, what was um, familiar to me. And you, you go to a new place and you have no new friends. Da, 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 da. But that, that, that move, that change afforded me um, opportunities in life that I didn't know that I needed. And that's where I changed. I look back on this place and I go, oh, shit, this is, I never would have made 
myself of who I am in this place. And, you know, I didn't want to end up living a small town life in small town bubble. I, I've seen now from a distance that I was right for me. And for some, it might prove the right setting. But, you know, I've even had a childhood friend who I have not seen in those 25 years, but tells me a few different times over the past handful of years that um, I am so lucky to have gotten out of there, as he puts it. Wow. He happens to be kind of sort of a miserable person. And I, I say that, I don't say that negatively. I'm just saying he, he, he lives his life and he's not a happy person. And he's the type of person that clearly understands his setting isn't what he wants, but it's damn near impossible for him to leave. He's kind of stuck in this situation. And I wonder if the subject of this song feels that or if they're happy to be where they are, you know, still in that small town working a simple job. Perhaps she was okay with it until she saw the former love, you know, maybe that former love not recognize her, recognizing her is the realization of something bigger about her life. You know, I just want to scream, hello, never dreamed you'd return. You know, that's regret. So maybe, yeah. so maybe she does, does feel like she should have gotten out of there, kind of like me. Um, but it's just about this, you know, loss. Is it just this lost love or what the lost love represents? You know, a former life. So, you know, that person has moved on from her and from this old town, this small town. They've progressed to something new and bigger, presumably, and you have not. The subject has not. And that was the fear that I had, um, retrospectively speaking, about finally getting out of there. So I wonder about this subject. I wonder how Eddie got to this point where he's able to have this story. Is it somebody that he knew back in Chicago? Is it somebody that he knew in San Diego? You know, I love to know where that came from. It's got to be tied to something real, you know? It is tied to something real, man. It has to it be. It has to be. So, has to be. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on to our live cut of the week. Ready to stand up! And live cut of the week this week, elderly woman. It's going to come from that era. So uh, when exactly and where, Paul? Uh, we're going to the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, mama. I know. It was broadcast on radio. Ed had that whole 45-minute DJ session from a van after the show, right? And um, kind of a precursor to Monkey Wrench, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear various versions of this song throughout the years. At one point, they, they play it really messy. They just stay plugged in and distorted. And to me, I, I thought I, I like that version of the song in the sense that there's a, there, there seems to be a symbolic reflection of just how messy things get when you stay mm. potentially. Yeah. But I prefer something a bit more faithful. There was, that was the first daughter and elderly were the first like, truly acoustic tracks that Pearl Jam put on an album. You know what I mean? Cause you didn't have that on 10. And so there's something about remaining faithful to that and allowing that melody to breathe like that, that you, it just gets lost in the distortion. So you, you get a nice, clean, crisp, fantastic sounding version here from um, this, this particular set. And I have the, uh, the actual bootleg that came out and it was like, it feels like, um, like it, it folds out and it's three discs, you know, hmm. it's a really, really cool set. And uh, it's one of my favorite 
pieces of Pearl Jam memorabilia. Do you remember where you and, got it? Oh God, yeah, I bought it at Amoeba. Oh really? And uh, I did at the time up in San Francisco. And I I forget what I paid for it at the time, but probably too much. Probably too much. Yeah, I remember dropping like between the twenty and thirty bucks for these bootlegs. And sometimes you pop them in, and they the sound quality was just utter trash. You know what I mean? But I was overjoyed when I I listened to that. It was, it was some of the best sounding bootleg that you'd get. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, obviously, it was a it was soundboard broadcast quality. So. They crush it, man. It's just a really, really beautiful rendition, and um, it's it's from the the album tour itself. And so, if you're kind of thinking, man, I'd love to hear elderly uh, in, in its prime, right? So let mm-hmm. let's let's see the elderly woman in her prime, and, okay. and you'll get you'll get it. I know you you'll get it on April third, nineteen ninety four. All right, let's go to Atlanta. Oh, 
Yeah, Paul, this um this version, you talk about, you know, clean being very similar to the studio version. I find that especially on the studio version, this is one of those songs that feels like it's one of the most directly into my ear hole kind of songs. Like there's not a lot of depth or space sonically speaking where it's just like I feel like Ed's speaking right into my ear and the guitar is right in my ear. And this version kind of gets me to that, but then you also have it on in the context of, of an incredibly great crowd. Yeah. Uh, and it was deep in the set list. It's like, in, it's in the encore. Um, it's right after, what did they play right before better man right before that. And mm-hmm. funny enough, um, in between better man and, and, uh, and as a woman, uh, Ed in this weird moment of clarity, I guess, uh, remembers that they're on the radio and says something to the effect of, well, if you're still listening on the radio, let me explain to you what's going on. And he proceeds to uh, say what everyone's wearing and what they're doing, <laughs> including saying, you know, Jeff is uh, sitting on a stool right now. He's going to play a stand-up bass for the next song. You know, in 40 years, we're all going to be sitting on stools. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, Jesus, that's like 10 years from now. <laughs> no, we're getting old. Like that, that's We're past the halfway point of him making that comment oh god we're getting old man we'll get old together jason that's all and i can we'll, only ask for hey, hey you know what the fact that we're doing this podcast is a reflection of the fact that we've been blessed with the opportunity to get old with the band you know what yeah. i mean because if you're a Soundgarden fan or an alice in chains fan or a stone temple pilots fan and the list goes on and on and on and on and on um that that opportunity was sadly deprived from well, you, you know a number so. a number of artists i, mean, I know man people that you know that their favorite group or or singer or whatever is still doing their thing like if you're a beatles fan you lucked out that mccartney is still alive yeah but it's not the same though it's i mean i have a friend of mine's a huge rush fan he was like dude i i was gonna take my son to see rush yeah. and then we lost neil and so it's it's one of those things where um every minute we get with these guys, you know what I mean? Like yeah. as, uh, we, we complain about wanting new music more on and, and uh, holiday singles, all that jazz. But the reality is that we just got a four hour interview with Eddie Vedder. You know what I mean? Um, and there's going to be new songs coming up actually. He, and we shouldn't he, be taking this thing for granted. I mean, we, no. are, we are pigs and shit with the, the fact that our favorite band has been tr- amazing and relevant and still firing all cylinders, still selling out everything, still available, still accessible. Maybe more, maybe they haven't been this accessible in years. Maybe this is the most accessible they've ever been. Yeah. And th- there's no sign that they're going to stop and we get to continue to have them. You know, people ask me all the time, like, you're still, you're a big Pearl Jam fan, huh? I go, yeah, still am. <laughs> and I get to still, still be it. Yeah. Obviously, at a certain point, they're going to be like, you know, 70 and it's not going to be a thing anymore. But we have this opportunity and Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we'll have the opportunity next year to actually see some shows again. Yes. God willing. And hear this lovely (laughs) song for the millionth time. But until then. You've been listening to (laughs) The State of Love and Trust. (laughs) 